Welcome to Evolution Impossible, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. Our host is Dr. Sven Estring with special guest Dr. John Ashton and our panel. Hi, I'm Sven Estring and you are joining us for another episode of Evolution Impossible, a series where we're exploring whether evolution, the major scientific theory about the origin of life, is even possible. It's great to have you back on the studio, um, Ali, and a new uh, member of our panel is Justin Terosian. Good to have you. Good to be here. And of course, Morgan Vincent, good friend of mine. Thanks for joining us as well. And of course, it's really good to have Dr. John Ashen with us once again, taking us on this journey with all your expertise and research as well. So it may sound like our discussion is going to be fairly dead today. We will be focusing on the remains of animals that are no longer alive. But let me assure you that this is really very interesting. And what is really surprising is that the fossil record actually supports the Bible and not evolution. Isn't that amazing? So let's jump right into the dig today. And my question for you at the start, John, is this. How are fossils actually formed? Right. So the fossils are the remains of uh, animals that have lived in the past and uh, have died and have been preserved in some way. So normally when animals die, they, or, uh, or in a plant matter, plant matter rots away, is eaten by bacteria, worms, so forth. Animals similarly eaten by worms, maggots, or other animals broken down by bacteria. So they decay fairly quickly. So for example, a few years ago, we had massive floods in Queensland. Uh, I think an area the size of the state of New South Wales was flooded, but it didn't result in a whole lot of fossilised kangaroos, possums, emus, lizards and mm, so forth. That's very true. So it, we require fairly unique conditions to fossilise a, a previously living organism. So tell us, what are those conditions that we need to have for fossilisation? Right, so very quickly we have to protect that uh, organism from the natural breakdown uh, mechanisms or predators and so forth. And that usually requires very rapid burial uh, in a way too that is going to preserve it from rotting mechanisms and so forth. Uh, so very rapid burial is usually the, the key situation. Now this requires, if you have a large animal like you know a big dinosaur or a whale or something like that, then you need enormous amount of material to fossilise something like that. Uh, but we find fossils of you know, insects, plants. One of the fascinating things, of course, is that we find fossils of soft-bodied animals like uh, jellyfish and octopuses and this, this sort of thing. So again, here we require very rapid um, and we find a, a, a covering of the uh, material and burying of the material. Um, also, we find fossilised footprints and this sort of thing. We know, you know, you go walk along the beach, everybody walks along the beach, but it doesn't mean that you're going to leave fossil footprints be behind. Mm. So it requires pretty unique conditions to do that. 
Mm. Other, other types, particularly of wood, can become fossilised by, once the, the wood is buried, it can be uh, prevented by uh, rotting as uh, minerals seep through the, the rock strata and cell by cell, the material might be replaced by silica. And so this way we can actually observe the structures, the internal structures of uh, animals and um, uh, plant matter that has lived previously. So that's how we know, for example, about the structure of trilobite eyes and this sort of thing that lived mm. you know, hundreds of millions of years ago. So it's a fascinating process, but it only occurs under unique situations that enable very rapid burial. And that generally is some sort of really major catastrophe. And so if we consider sort of like the Queensland floods, that was a major you know, area in terms of our life, our current you know, experiences in the world today. But what buried whales and dinosaurs and all these massive uh, beds of fossils that we find where we have thousands of fossilised creatures, a catastrophic event totally unlike anything else recorded in human history other than in the flood account of the Bible. Mm. Mm. Very, very interesting. Just wanted to ask you, did you have any questions for John about how fossils are formed and fossils in general? Hmm. I was um, I was interested to know, Dr. Ashton, I read in your book about different um, graveyards of fossils that have been found, like dinosaur graveyards. And I'm interested to know whether there's ever been human fossil graveyards found, and if not, why you think that might be? Yes, well, that's a very challenging question. We don't find those uh, human fossil graveyards, uh, to my knowledge. We find occasionally, uh, you know, fossil hominoid species, but they're probably interpreted as being fairly recent, I would, I would say, although they're dated sometimes as a couple of million years old, but they're isolated, you know, skeletons or remains of skeletons that are found. Of course, this is the basis that people argue for the, the evolution of humans when they find some of these homoloid type uh, fossils. But no, we don't find fossil graveyards like that. Hmm. <laughs> but humans are pretty intelligent, of course. And, mm. uh, but I don't have an answer for that. Mm. Mm. I was wondering, uh, you know, you brought up in, in this chapter, it was very interesting that um, 98 to 99% of the species that we find in the fossil record are extinct. Is, yes. And I was amazed to hear that because you know, evolutionary theory would suggest that you go from very few and very simple organisms to more complex and more numerous and more complex and more numerous. But it seems that the fossil record suggests the opposite, that there were many more species, you know, existent before uh, than now. And so does that turn evolutionary theory on its head in that sense? And if so, how do um, your average evolutionary scientists explain that? Hmm. I don't think, well, well, I don't know of any explanation, but it, it's true. What we find mm. in the fossil record is a record of fully formed creatures mm. and then they become extinct. So the picture that we, uh, is portrayed in the textbooks and, and the standard books on evolution and this sort of thing is that we have these uh, layers over time. We have these more primitive creatures at the bottom layers and then as we get up the higher layers, they're more complex and therefore this is this pattern of evolution from simpler creatures mm -hmm. up to you know, more complex, you know, more advanced creatures mm -hmm. over that period of time. So that's what's portrayed in the, in the textbooks. But what, uh, what we actually find is very different to that. Now I guess 
well, it's probably good to understand how this whole uh, concept of geology and paleontology came about, if we look at the history, because the, the history explains the thinking now of how geologists and paleontologists have been taught and how they then interpret what they find. So if we, if we go back in the mid-1600s, for example, um, there was a, 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 a geologist or a, a, a scientist, Steno, and he proposed that the, the lower th layers were older than the upper layers, mm. and, th and that's very logical. Mm -hmm. And then he proposed that if there was a volcanic intrusion that went through those, that that had to happen after all those layers were laid down. And, and again, that all, all makes sense. And then uh, there was a, a guy who was a contractor digging canals around London and Europe, William Smith, in the late uh, 1700s. Um, and he, he was very observant. As his men were digging the canals, he noticed, well, look, I've got a layer of rocks here. You know, it might be a mudstone, then a limestone, and then a shale, and then a conglomerate, uh, and then another mudstone. Um, and he observed the same pattern when he was digging canals over in France. Mm. And he also noticed that they had certain fossils in them. And he proposed that from the fossils in a particular layer, you could identify that strata. And that strata was not just local, it was widespread. You know, mm. So the same strata in England were over there in France. Mm. Now, about 30 or so years later, Lyle was doing research in the Alps and he observed all these layers and, the, and that the fossils again seemed to be more, the creatures seemed to be more complex or higher sort of uh, creatures. Uh, the higher up the layers, they were more complex. And, uh, and of course, this meant that they were younger or further along in, in, in a time scale. And he proposed that there could, uh, these fossils could be actually uh, used to identify the layers worldwide and a geologic column. Mm. And so hence they set up this dating system of the, of the columns were, was set up that way. So when scientists look at these uh, fossils now, they're interpreting them in terms of these, uh, these ages. Now these ages were actually calculated on the basis of the thickness of the deposit. So if you had a deposit that might be a kilometre deep and had millions of layers, then Lyle proposed, well, that must be millions of years old because these layers probably represented annual layers coming down. And another um, uh, geologist, James Hutton, had proposed around, again, in the late 1700s, that the processes on Earth were millions of years old and had happened very gradually. So when scientists look at these, um, this particular situation, they're, they're, this is the way we, we're taught in university. Um, you know, I, I can re remember I actually got a high distinction in stratigraphy when I was doing uh, geology. And when we, we look at these structures, that's how we interpret those fossil layers as over a long period of time. Now, when Darwin's theory is superimposed on this, the whole thing is, oh, well, this is the gradual progression mm. of, of creatures. Mm. And that's what's in their mind. When we step back, though, and we look at it, and we find, well, hang on, there's actually no evolutionary development of particular animals. So, for example, you've got trilobites, mm. which are those little sort of like pill bug type 
creatures that lived at the bottom that have segmented bodies, lots of legs, uh, big head, compound, very uh, complex eyes, a lot of genetic code, their digestive system, all this sort of thing. And they're right at the very lower of the, the Cambrian rocks, which are among the oldest fossil bearing rocks. And then under them, we can find thousands of metres, of, well, thousands of feet, thousand metres or so, of layers of rock with no fossils in them. So they just suddenly appear hmm. fully formed. And it's the same with, with insects, flying insects. They just suddenly appear in the fossil record. Flowering plants, they just suddenly appear. They don't change and then they become extinct. And this is this is this whole pattern, as you talked about earlier, is a pattern of extinction. All these creatures are there; they they don't change, and then they're extinct, and we don't see them again. And as you say, ninety-eight percent to ninety-nine percent of all the creatures that we have been preserved as fossils and we know living today um, are now extinct. It's huge, yeah. and it's directly opposite to what, as you were saying, to what the, the theory of evolution would teach. Mm. But because scientists are enamoured with this gradual progression and that evolution occurred, that thinking is just superimposed, and I guess they're just blinded to it, and mm. it's never questioned. Mm. It's mm. So, John, where can we go to actually see this geological column? Is there, is there a place that we can um, see the entire column? No. Well, there's, as far as I know, there's no complete section of column. There's a big slab, of course, exposed in the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a section there on the east face, I think it is, that uh, covers about 300 million years conventional dating sort of thing. Um, And one of the fascinating aspects of that, and again, this fits the flab model. See, when we... The the geology textbooks tell us that there were about five extinction events that occurred. Uh, But they space them... Uh, there's one extinction event they date about 450 million years ago, another one about 400 million years ago, another one 250 million years ago, another one 200 million years ago, another one 65 million years at the end of the Cretaceous. So these, they, they assigned, the geologists acknowledge that these were global extinction mm. events involving water. Mm. Interesting. Involving mm. water. Yeah. It's amazing, right? Now, Okay, they're dated, as we can see, up to hundreds of millions of years apart. But the thing is, if we look at that Grand Canyon section there, we've got 300 million years of parallel layers conformably laying on top of one another. Now, by the word conformably, geologists mean there's no signs of erosion in between. Interesting. Hmm. This uh, this just blows the whole concept of million years away. You know, I've got to so grab the driveway. The, what would the evolutionistic um, explanation be for those layers where there's no <laughs> erosion in between the layers? Well, I don't think they have one. The, there is no this, the, this is the, this is the whole puzzle, and there's a, a few uh, you know, paleontologists and people that speak out about this. You know, and this is a, a major problem. And they recognise, well, hang on, we, we don't actually see evolution occurring in the, in the fossil layers. We just see, you know, animals formed, they stay the same, um, they don't become extinct. And also we don't see this erosion occurring 
in between. Mm. And so the, the answer they have is, runs along the lines, well, these conditions must have been laid down under in some sort of lake and it was very, you know, uniform, it was very contained. And, and so over this long period of time, yeah, it was just stable for a long period of time. Mm. But these same layers that, is, that span this period also contain fossils of dinosaurs, you know, great big animals and all that we know have to be buried under catastrophic conditions. Mm-hmm. And so this is the major problem that they have. We've got no erosion in between the layers, mm. and yet we have to bury these animals, like big whales, dinosaurs, stegosauruses, you know, that are mm-hmm. sort of 30 metres long. They were buried sort of in, in flood-type events. Well, you have to have a massive mm. catastrophic event to and bury those things. Incredible. Mm. And, but the other thing that we find too, in these layers that are, again, conformably set on one another, we can find cross-bedding. Mm. Now, cross-bedding, if you imagine a sand dune and you're blowing sand over the top of it, you get a layer here and a layer here. And so this layer is on an angle. And from this angle, we can actually calculate the velocities of the fluid that is causing the dune. Now, the same effect occurs underwater. And from the slope of the and the study of these uh, bedding angles, or not bedding angle, cross-bedding, we can actually calculate the speed of the water. And the speeds of the water are equivalent to um, what you get in a tsunami mm. type scenario. Oh, wow. mm. The other thing is too, when we look at these beds like you, that are exposed in the Grand Canyon, like if you look at uh, the Morrison Formation that, that goes through there, this is a massive formation over one and a half million square kilometres. So this is huge. Okay. One and a half million square kilometres is huge. It spreads from New Mexico up to Canada Right? That, that's a huge step. And so we have water that's been carried, the, the material that has been carried and spread as a thin layer over this massive area of land. This is no little lake sediment mm. sort of mm. settling down. This is a massive event. Wow. And so, and as I said, so the stand textbooks say we have this massive event occurring at these different times. The other fascinating thing that often isn't portrayed is that if we look at the surface of the Earth, only about 5% of the the Earth's crust is sedimentary rock, that is rock laid down underwater. So it's a very thin layer. Well, there's a thin layer of crust, about the the thickness comparatively of an eggshell on an egg as the Earth's crust. But only about 5% of that crust is sedimentary rock rock, right? So only a very small percentage of it. But yet 75% of the Earth's surface is covered with sedimentary rock. Mm. And so what it means is that we've got this very thin layer of sedimentary rock Mm. spread all over the Earth. Mm. Matter of fact, at the end of the Cretaceous, the textbooks tell us the entire Earth was covered by water. Wow. So you'd sort of think if so the... It's, it's the Noah's flood scenario. Hmm. So if you, you're thinking that uh, the Earth was billions of years, you'd think that the sedimentary layers would be much thicker, but it'd be more, more layers than just this small, small amount that we actually have. Well, I think it's more that what they're saying is that there's got to be gradual processes that have, have, have occurred. Yes over a period of time and that it's they're more a series of localised floods. But the other scientific observation that mitigates against that is that we find the same pattern of rock layers 
all over the world. Hmm. And so you lay of quartz quartzite conglomerates and so forth. This same pattern, mm. same pattern of limestone, this sort of thing. If there are a whole series of local floods and local lakes and all this sort of thing that laid down all these beautiful parallel layers, you wouldn't expect to find the same ones in Europe, North America, Australia and South mm. Africa and Asia, mm. right? Mm. And so the evidence is so clear that we had a global catastrophic mm. event and it buried all these animals mm. all at once. So these, yeah. this period of time that they spread over, you know, 450 million, well, was it for, from 450 to 65, 400 million years thereabouts, though all those different extinction events, we have all this overwhelming evidence that it must have been at the same time. Mm. Uh, because otherwise, we'd have massive erosion in between. Mm. Yes. Massive erosion in between. Yeah, that's an amazing amount of detail. Morgan, we do want to bring you into the conversation mm. as well. So did you have any questions for John this, uh, today? Sure, yeah. Touching uh, on what we've spoken about so far, just a question surrounding the, the time frames of the fossils. Uh, often, you know, science is something to be testable, observable, and we can see these large, very large time frames. How do we reconcile that uh, with realising that, you know, was someone there to observe uh, 450 million years ago? Yeah, sure. So this is very interesting. Those timescales are based on the uniformitarian um, uh, principle, assuming that the surface of the Earth for millions of years has undergone steady processes. And so when they count up all the layers, uh, and that's what they've done, they've looked at sedimentary layers, they've counted up how how many layers we've got per metre, and then we've got something that's a thousand metres thick, so therefore it must be so many million years old, just by calculation. And that's how the geologic column was essentially dated by Lyle, and there's geologists that followed him, was simply on the basis of the thickness of the layers. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no place on the earth where the entire column is there. It's, it's, it, sections are exposed in different areas. And so they'd measure the thickness in the different layers and they'd say, well, the top of this layer, we've got this particular fossil. That particular fossil corresponds to the bottom of that particular layer. So we're going to put that on top of that. And we kept on adding these. And we assigned then ages to the particular types of fossils that are used to identify the layers. So that's how the different layers we hear about, Jurassic and Ordovician and so forth, Jurassic, Cretaceous, all these sort of particular uh, periods, they are characterised by particular fossils mm-hmm. that, are, that are the uh, key fossils that label those particular layers. And that's how those ages were worked out. Now, later on, we can talk about... Um, radiometric dating, but radiometric dating gives a wide variability of results. And generally they can find a result that will match the fossil age. And Mm -hmm. once that happened in the 1940s in particular, that more or less cemented these timescales. But there's a lot of problems with these timescales that we can discuss, probably another time. Mm. (laughs) Dr Ashton, I'm curious to know, taking you to the, back to the fossils um, that are found in the different rock layers and the different time periods that they assign to those. Um, it seems obvious to me from what you've already said that it doesn't support evolutionary theory, but I'm curious to know what the creationist theory is about why there's um, different types of fossils found in the different rock layers and how those animals got separated. Is there a, a um, particular explanation to that? 
Okay. Now there's two aspects to that. And firstly, down the very bottom layers, we tend to find creatures that lived underwater hmm. and lived at the ocean bottom. And fair enough, that's where we would expect <coughs> to find them in those layers. Yeah. But the other thing is that the fossil layers are much more mixed up yeah. than we, you know, see these nice, clear, you know, um, outlines, for example. So it's a real simplification of the, the fossil record. Yes. You have this mm. gradual transitional yeah. layer. And, and, and earlier on, we need to remember that these uh, key fossils were set up fairly early on before you know, all the fossils had been discovered. Discovered, yes. Yeah. And, and there were major issues. For example, they found fossils where, or well, polystrate fossils, for example, in Nova Scotia, where it's a, a classic example where we've got trees going through a whole series of layers. Mm. Mm. And then inside the trees, they find the remains of animals that have been washed in there. So and, what about the, so the explanation that they somehow <clears throat> the trees just got jammed in by violent kind of force, volcanic activity, just straight down through the geological column? Does that, does that sort of count? Does that make sense or um, in terms of why the trees all the way through? Uh, well, no, I think studies from what happened after Mount St. Helens and so forth suggest that, no, these trees are there, they're floating in the water and then they're sort of buried and that's right. why they tend to be... Uh, more uh, vertical. But the other thing is, yes, that the, the fossils are far more mixed up. For example, there, were, there are lots of mammals that existed at the same times as dinosaurs. And, mm. and in some of the remain, uh, huge fossil beds in Mongolia, for example, we find this. We find the fossils of mammals mixed up with the fossils of dinosaurs and this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But one of the guys, um, Dr. Carl Werner, published some books and he did a study of museum um, displays and he reports that in none of his museum displays did he see mammals on display with dinosaurs. They were always sort of separate as being occurring mm. later but yet they mixed up. And this is the thing that they, they tend to be mixed up much more than uh, you know and, and clarify uh, mm. than uh, and not as separated as uh, as often portrayed. Mm. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. So how would evolutionists explain the the fact that you'd have dinosaurs and mammals in the same um, you know geological layer? How would they? What would their explanation for that be? Well, they have to accept that they had evolved by that stage. Right. Don't they? <laughs> Look, there are so many problems with the standard uh, paleontological long age interpretation. There are absolutely massive problems with it. But they've got nowhere else to go mm. other than, you know, the Bible record. Now, I mean, up to the 1830s, 1840s, flood geology was taught in, you know, British universities, most European universities. And it made a lot of sense. But the attempt to accommodate Darwinian evolution and stretch everything out, we run into a whole lot of problems. Mm. And really, the best fit of the data is Noah's flood, exactly. It, it fits the data perfectly. Mm. Mm. I have one other question for you, Dr Ashton, um, just regarding the way fossils are dated. And you mentioned that evolutionists usually use uh, uniformitarianism. They assume that everything was the same in the past as it is today. And I'm wondering why they use uniformitarianism when they themselves believe in things like ice ages and, and that kind of thing that would obviously skew those results. Well, that's, that's a question that we will yeah. have to look at in our next episode. <laughs> and so... The fossil record is actually evidence of extinction and not evolution. That's quite an eye-opening insight. 
And with another key beam in the theory of evolution and collapsing, where does that leave the theory? I'd highly recommend that you go to your favorite online bookstore and get Dr. John Ashton's book, Evolution Impossible. Um, you know, as Ali was pointing out, there's so many details about the fossils that we just could not talk about. But don't worry, his book is easy to understand. We'll be continuing our investigation of evolution next time, looking to see whether the fossil record shows the evolutionary links which are needed. Now, if you missed any of our past programs, you can go to the 3ABN website and watch them there. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you for joining us on Evolution Impossible, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au or call us within Australia on 024973 3456. We'd love to hear from you.